I'll invite you to open up your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians, uh, first chapter there, verses 18 through 25. That's where we're going. Again, you're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. I'd like to jump right in with a little bit of a corporate exercise. So this is a little different. I'm going to invite your involvement, okay? So here we go. Martin Luther King Jr., Mahatma Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, and Abraham Lincoln. So as I speak these names, your brains are already processing them through what you already know about these people, right? Because they're not just names, they're names that represent real people in history. So when you hear these names, what do you think these names have in common? I'll read them again. Martin Luther King Jr., Mahatma Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, and Abraham Lincoln. All right, I'm opening it up to the floor. What do they have in common? Anybody? They're all dead. You know, that's a true point. Absolutely, 100% true. They're all dead. They're finite. Racial equality, freedom. These are things they advocated for. Racial equality and freedom. What else? I saw somebody over here. Did they steal your answer? They were famous. Absolutely, well-known. Leaders, exactly. Yes, they were leaders. As leaders, they had many followers. They influenced their followers. Anybody else? What do these guys have in common? Dissension, yeah, a lot of, uh, yeah, absolutely. Forces coming against them. Well, thank you so much for your uh, participation. That was really good. I, you know, I'm, thank you for having mercy on me. It would have been really awkward if there was a long silence. Uh, a couple of things that I noted, and you know, I cheated. I had a little bit more time to think this through, so it's not really fair. Um, fun fact, there's statues somewhere on the earth right now standing of each one of these guys. Uh, they're talented speakers. We talked about that. As talented speakers and as leaders, they influenced and had many followers. Uh, and this was spoken as well, that they were advocates of the human cause of peace and spoke out against racial and social injustice. And here, this last point here, they represent the peak, the peak of human wisdom and influence in modern history. And that last point there is what I want to hone in on today, that these leaders, yes, they sought lasting peace and freedom. They sought after these good things, and they represent the peak of what humankind, what human wisdom and human ability is able to accomplish toward those goals. And my point in bringing them up is not to belittle what they've accomplished. But you don't need me to tell you that this world that we live in is not a world of peace. And you don't need me to tell you that the world that we live in, we go outside and it seems that everywhere we go, the air we breathe is full of racial and social injustice. And again, I'm not trying to belittle these men. These were great men. I'm not trying to belittle what they've accomplished. But my point is this to point us to our need for something greater. Not just something greater, but someone greater who we need to save us from ourselves. For the salvation of mankind, for the solution to all the world's problems will never come through human wisdom or power. And that's what our text is all about today. So we're going to see Paul. He's going to confront human wisdom in its peak with God's wisdom. 
And I think we can all predict who's gonna be the victor there. We're gonna see him challenge these Corinthian believers to abandon their culture's value of reason, of logic, of eloquent speech, and self-indulgence, and to abandon their reliance on human wisdom with a reverent fear for the wisdom of God and a suffering savior. And so we're gonna read the text together and then I'll invite God's help for us. But before we get to the text, uh, in order for us to understand what it is that we're reading, we need a little bit of context here, right? So let's just back up a second and point out that Paul is the writer here, the Apostle Paul. He's writing to believers in this ancient city in the first century of Corinth. Uh, a place where, a city where a lot of foot traffic came in and out, all kinds of travelers coming in and out, some staying behind. And so the result is you find this, and I'm quoting here, a city that is prosperous, cosmopolitan, and religiously pluralistic. So all kinds of different people here. And here's what I want us to hear today, that this city was accustomed to visits by impressive traveling speakers. Impressive traveling speakers. And the city was obsessed with status, self-promotion, and personal rights. And this is the culture of the audience to which Paul is writing. Doesn't sound so foreign to us, does it? If we're honest. And in the previous section of chapter one leading up to our section today, Paul is addressing some divisions and some quarreling going on among these believers. And these, this wasn't just quarreling and squabbling about uh, doctrine. It wasn't, this is what I believe versus what you believe. This was about people and personality because this church was full of all different kinds of people with all different kinds of personality. And Paul urges them in the beginning of that chapter to become united in the same mind and the same judgment. And how does he advise them to do that? By pointing them to the only and true source of unity, the only one who could unify them the person who is Jesus Christ. And in today's text, Paul continues that thought a little bit. And so we're gonna pick it up in verse 18. But in verse 17, he introduces this idea and begins to contrast the eloquent wisdom, he calls it, and the world in Corinth that was so valued there. This eloquent wisdom contrasted with the blunt reality of the gospel. And if you were to read on further in this letter and past even our text today, you'd see Paul unpack a little bit of what it means to follow a seemingly foolish God in a culture that values wisdom and power. So that's a little bit of our context as we head into the text. You ready to read it together? Let's do that. Picking up in verse 18, again, this is chapter one, verse 18. This is God's word. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, 
and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word this morning. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in it. Thank you for this passage in particular. And I thank you for being willing to speak into our lives. And so this morning, that is our prayer, that you would speak in this room. And as I speak, may my words be yours, so that you speak in such a way to each person here, every single one of us, open up our hearts to hear from you this morning. May it be you, the God of the Bible, the God of the universe who speaks this morning. This is our prayer. Help us to listen. In Jesus' name, amen. So in our section today, Paul transitions a little bit. He goes from immediately addressing divisions in the church to talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. And I don't think that's by accident. You see, to, to unite these believers who are having these divisions, he points them to Jesus. Paul speaks of Apollos and Cephas and himself as these speakers who the Corinthians were aligning themselves with. You see that earlier on in chapter one, they're saying, well, I follow Paul. No, I follow Cephas, I follow Apollos. And why were they doing that? Well, what we need to understand is that in this Hellenistic culture of the first century, especially in Corinth here, in this Greek culture, there was a tremendous value on what Paul calls lofty speech or this words of eloquent wisdom. Corinth especially valued articulate reason and philosophy, specifically as a means to discover divine truth. In other words, it wasn't divine revelation, God speaking, God revealing himself. It wasn't miraculous signs and wonders that people would look to to decide whether to believe in one God or another. But no, debate and discussion was the platform where one deity would outshine another and therefore prove its reliability and authority. So in this world, it was all about the ability of the speaker and how well he could express himself that would convince others of whether that deity was worthy to be followed or not. And so in a world where talented speakers won over the day, wisdom was king. The wisest divinity would rule. And so in this culture, wisdom was essentially synonymous with power. And the followers were trying to tap into that power and influence for themselves. And so the driving motivation of all this lofty and articulate speech used by these speakers was only to gain power and influence. Self-gain was the motivation. And wisdom was only valued in this culture because it was a means by which you would attain wisdom and power. And to many of us, I think we hear self-gain and it's almost like a bad word to us, right? Self-gain, because we've been trained in reading scripture and we know that selfish motivation, selfish human motivation is sinful. 
and it's futile. It doesn't work. It doesn't pan out for us. But in this pagan culture, power, influence, self-gain, these weren't bad things. These were celebrated things. This is what you lived for in this culture. It's what you did. You lived for yourself, for you. It wouldn't have been considered a bad thing. It would have been considered a good thing. You would celebrate someone else going after their dreams and becoming wise and powerful. And the best way to live for yourself in this culture was to align yourself with the wisest person and therefore the most powerful person. And so you see these Corinthians saying, well, I follow Apollos, I follow Paul, I follow Cephas. Evidently, these guys were some pretty talented speakers because the Corinthians, by nature, in their culture, they wanted to align themselves with the wisdom of what they were preaching. And we know this of Apollos. We see it in another section of scripture that he was a talented speaker and a talented preacher. But clearly there's a difference between what these three preachers were preaching and what the power-hungry orators of Corinth would be preaching. So Paul says he did not use eloquent wisdom or lofty speech. Take a look with me at chapter 1, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And hear this part. And not with words of what? Eloquent wisdom. Lest the cross, the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Look also at chapter 2, verse 1 there. And I, again, this is Paul talking, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with what? Lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You see, these three preachers brought a different message. It wasn't a human message. And therefore, they utilized a different method. Paul doesn't use human means of persuasion to preach the gospel because the gospel is not a product of human wisdom. And in a world where articulate and dynamic reasoning won the day, Paul came with a simple message, Jesus Christ crucified. The message of a Jewish Messiah Fully God and fully man, born of a virgin, unstained by original sin, perfect and innocent, who despite deserving none of it, bore the full judgment and wrath of Almighty God, being hung on a cross as a criminal. He sacrificed himself to not only save the Jews, but the Jews and Gentile alike, slave or free, man or woman, Jesus sacrificed so that they, if they might believe on him, would be saved. Ha! Ha! Foolishness! You fool. That would have been the response to the message of this God-man who crucified himself in this ancient city of Corinth. Foolishness. Read 18 with me. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It is folly. What kind of God subjects himself to human flesh, to a human body, to becoming human? Okay, and let's just say that he does that. What kind of God then subjects himself to being crucified? 
in this culture, power, transcendence, strength, these are the markers of true divinity. But the cross represents weakness, shame, humiliation. In human wisdom, the message of the cross is utterly ridiculous. The death of God does not compute as a sensible possibility in our human brains. And remember that in this culture, logic and reason were so especially valued. And so to align yourself with a crucified criminal who called himself God would be sheer lunacy. Human wisdom cannot appreciate the wisdom of God. That's why he is God and we are not. Check out verse 19 with me. For it is written, and this is Paul quoting God here. So this is God's voice. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Transition here to Paul now talking in verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And so Paul here references back to the prophet Isaiah, to God's quote here. And he references a good example of God's wisdom, although perfect, appearing foolish in the minds of man. In this story, the great Assyrian army, the superpower of its day, has just defeated the northern kingdom of Israel and now is marching south to finish the job in the southern kingdom of Judah. And so there is great danger. And the king of Judah at the time, Hezekiah, represents the wisdom of man in the story. And so he strategically begins to make preparations for this Assyrian army coming. And so in the capital city of Jerusalem, he fortifies the walls, gets ready for a great battle, fortifies the walls. He builds a tunnel outside the walls that will bring water inside the city from outside the walls so that when the Assyrian army would come, that they would be able to still have a source of life so that this tactic of siege would, would not work to suck out the life out of their city. And then he calls upon Egypt for aid and says, come help us fight this Assyrian army. And from a human perspective, this all seems very reasonable. And actually this is very militarily sound. These are great strategies. So what's the problem here? Why is this such a big deal? Well, you see, God had already promised Hezekiah that the Assyrians would not set foot inside the walls of Jerusalem. But with this dire threat of a massive superpower on his doorstep, Hezekiah begins to make himself a little bit of a backup plan. Just in case God doesn't come through, I'm gonna make sure the walls are fortified. I've got a tunnel where water can come into the city and I'll call upon Egypt for aid. Hezekiah was relying on his own wisdom. But God's wisdom although not always apparent. Hezekiah couldn't see how God's wisdom and his plan was gonna pan out. But God's wisdom, although not always apparent, of course is always best. And so the Assyrian army comes and it surrounds Jerusalem and death appears imminent. But just as God promised to do, he strikes down the Assyrian army overnight by plague. The Bible says 185,000 men were killed by the hand of God that night. So as humans, we can never fully comprehend or understand the wisdom of God. And we especially can't see how it's gonna play out. We can't see into the future. We are not God, but he is. 
And so it's difficult for us then not to rely on our own wisdom and not to take control and try to protect ourselves and try to provide for ourselves. That's going to be our temptation continually. But hear this, that over time, human wisdom will always prove unreliable and incompetent. In the face of God, any wisdom that we have is just trivial. Not just trivial, but in the face of God, it's inherently worthless. Now, I don't want you to mishear me there. Uh, School is still important. Kids, you still have to go to school. You don't get out of it. No, uh, uh, God has given us minds, right? And to study and to learn and to grow in our knowledge, that's a worthwhile pursuit, a biblical pursuit. Human wisdom, of course, is not evil in and of itself. But when it is used as a means to protect or to promote self, it is worthless because only God's wisdom can save. And furthermore, because we are sinful and because we're messy people, any wisdom that we do end up attaining or that we do have is often skewed by us in one way or another for self-gain. And self-gain was the message in this ancient city of Corinth, in that world. And it's the same message in our world today, self-gain, self-advancement of yourself. You live for yourself. But the message of the cross is self-sacrifice. The gospel comes in direct opposition to the culture that we find ourselves in. I like the way that one commentator puts it. He says this, the wisdom of the world seeks its own advantage no matter how much it hurts others. But the wisdom of the cross serves others with no regard for personal cost. And that is a foolish message to those living in a self-indulgent world. But it's not foolish to all, is it? Read on with me in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to who? To those who are what? Perishing. It is folly to those who are perishing. Perishing. That's a strong word, isn't it? It's a word we've heard before, haven't we? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes on him should not what? Perish. It's the same word. Paul's making it clear here that every person is on one of two paths the path of destruction or the path of salvation. And it is your response to this word of the cross that will determine which path you're on. You're either on your way to eternal torment where the Bible says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth or you're on your way to salvation, to being with the God of the universe in his presence for all of eternity, living in everlasting peace, joy, and freedom. You're on one of those two paths. And that's the reality for every person. Here's something that's amazing. That without the cross, without Jesus being crucified on the cross, the entire world would be on the path of destruction with no hope of escape or salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes on him should not perish 
Do you realize what that means? That if it was not for the cross, that you and I and every human in history would be rightly condemned to the punishment that we all deserve. You deserve it and I deserve it. We would forever be wishing that God somehow made a way for us to be made right with him and so that we could know him. This is the reality for all of us. Paul, in another letter to believers in Ephesus, says you, he's speaking to believers, you Christians, you were dead, he says, dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. And so you see for all of us, whether right now we're on the path of salvation or we're on the path of destruction, we were all once at least dead. We were all once on that path. And so whether we're on the path of destruction or we're on the path of salvation, the foolish message, the seemingly foolish message of Jesus Christ crucified for you applies to you today. How you respond to this message will determine your eternal destiny. Because let me tell you something, you will never be able to save yourself. You'll never be able to find the everlasting fulfillment that your heart so desperately seeks anywhere else but in Jesus Christ. And if you think that's not true, if you think that you can save yourself or you think you can find fulfillment in other places, let me just point you just for a second to history. Let's think about how well history has done at achieving everlasting freedom and peace. How well has human wisdom done at eliminating evil from our world? I mentioned this before, and I don't need to get into statistics on murder or abortion or suicide, depression, all these horrible things. It is apparent to all of us, and we all know that deep down in our hearts that this world needs saving, that this world needs Jesus. No human being on his most wise and powerful day, he could ever, no human could ever conjure up God's plan for redemption through crucifixion of the divine son. No amount of human strategy or scheme will ever save. And so here again, we see human wisdom's incompetence, right? It's a doctrine that we call total depravity, which means that we believe that since Adam and Eve, since they sinned in the garden so long ago, that every human that has descended from them, you and I included, every single one of us, is totally depraved, meaning that we're in a perpetual state of sin, that we keep sinning over and over and over again, and we can't do anything on our own power or through our own wisdom to stop ourselves from doing it, no matter how hard we try. That song we sang earlier said, we work ourselves to the bone, but we can't do it on our own. Divine intervention is necessary for salvation. And what Paul is saying here is that this crucified Messiah, this crucified Jew who hung on a cross as a criminal, that might seem like foolishness, but that is the divine intervention that was necessary for salvation, for the salvation of all of us. It is the only way that we could be saved. Jesus dying on a cross. 
And so this seemingly preposterous folly of God is a saving folly. It is the saving folly. Verse 21, read with me. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Again, that means we can't know him through our own wisdom. But it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, namely Jesus Christ crucified, to save those who believe, to save those who believe. Salvation is only accomplished by divine wisdom and power. And the greatest expression of divine wisdom and power is found at the cross on Calvary, where God himself hung for you and for me. Verse 24, but to those who are called, to us who are saved, both Jews and Greeks alike, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. God incarnate dying on the cross as the responsible criminal for all sin is the most wise and powerful message possible. It is the fullest expression that we have of God's wisdom and power to save us. And who would have thought as a human being that God's wisdom and his power would be most fully displayed in a suffering savior? But this was always a part of his perfect plan and his perfect wisdom. And as the cornerstone of God's redemptive plan, as the one who holds it all together, as the one who enacts God's plan to save us, Jesus personifies God's wisdom and power. As a person, Jesus is wisdom and power. And on the most powerful day in history, on the cross, Jesus manifested, that is, he made known to us God's power and wisdom to save us. You might have noticed that God, being the creator of the universe, does not exactly take up residence here on this earth, so to speak. He, you can't exactly just walk down the street and go show up at God's house with a fruit basket and ask him to come on in and sit down and have a chat. That'd be kind of nice if it worked that way. But I bring that up to say God is spirit. He is omnipresent, meaning that he's not contained by our own conception of spatial awareness. And we can't see him today because he's spirit. So that means the only way we're able to know God is through him revealing himself to us. For him showing himself to us, for him and his self-revelation to us. And this is a way that he invites us into relationship with him. Come and know me. So God's self-revelation is an invitation for us to be in a relationship with him. And there's two ways that we typically talk about this, uh, God revealing himself. And the first is through what we call general revelation, right? An example of this is if you walk out these doors this morning, you go outside, you look at a tree, right? That tree testifies that there is a creator God. That tree did not just poof into existence. It did not just come about randomly, but God strategically and beautifully made that and designed it according to his perfect design. That tree testifies that there is a creator God. But looking at that tree, we can't exactly know all there is that God wants us to know about him by just looking at that tree, right? So there's a second way that God reveals himself to us it's through what we call special revelation, Right? So this is a more unique, more direct 
hence the word special revelation. An example of this is the Bible that we've been going through this morning, what we've been approaching. What so many of us are desperate for and what so many of us treasure and we cling to it. And why do we treasure and cling to it? Because we believe that this is the inspired word of God himself. And what we mean by that is that although human authors originally penned the words that we find here, that God oversaw them writing down their words so that every single word that they wrote down is the exact word that he wanted them to. And so what we have before us today is God showing us who he is exactly in the words that he wanted to show us. Are you thankful for the word of God this morning? And so I bring this up, this general and special revelation. This is a, such a special way that God reveals himself to us through his word, but the most special way that he reveals himself to us is through Jesus himself. Jesus, the God-man who walked on this earth. In Jesus, we get to see God's wisdom and power. We get to see who he is. Being God himself, he left heaven and became a human fetus in the womb of a real human mother. Jesus is fully God, but fully human. And so he shows us what God is like. And as a human person with a human body, Jesus literally embodies God's wisdom and power. Jesus is wisdom and power because Jesus is God. And he lived a perfect sinless life on this earth, on the same earth that you and I walk on. Jesus walked on here. And he faced the same temptations that we do. He is tempted and tried just like us, but he remained perfect and sinless. And according to God's perfect plan and his perfect wisdom, he bore the punishment for our sin in our stead as he hung as a criminal on a wooden cross where nails pierced his real human flesh on his hands and on his feet and where his real human tongue cried out, I thirst, and where his side poured out water and blood, the God-man crucified. Thought such a preposterous notion in this ancient city of Corinth, the God-man crucified. He is our only and true source of salvation. And in Christ, this power of wisdom, this dynamic of wisdom and power, it's completely flipped on its head, the paradigm, so that in Corinth, these people who were thought to be wise and powerful, these lofty speeches with their eloquent speech, they were actually the weak and foolish ones. And these Corinthian believers who were thought to be foolish and weak because they followed this crucified criminal, they are actually the wise and powerful ones because they are tapped into the wise and powerful one, Jesus. And we can be tapped into him too. And we see this human way of thinking flipped on its head all throughout scripture. That human way of thinking is so different from God's way of thinking. And often what we think is right is not. And often what we think is wise is not. And so how can we respond to this but simply to say that his ways are so much better than our ways and his wisdom so much greater than our wisdom. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. 
For who can know the mind of the Lord? Or who can be his counselor? So how can we respond to God's word this morning? I have a couple things that I want to share. And the first two points are more a matter of reflection, which I always think is a good place to start in responding to God's word, is to look in the mirror a little bit and see how his word applies to our lives. Many times I think in our lives, we want to take control. We want to take over the steering wheel a little bit and drive the car for a while, right? We say, God, you know, Jesus, don't take the wheel for a second. Let me drive. We're quick to rely on ourselves to provide, to protect. Maybe we get that paycheck with a little extra bonus on it and we stash it away for a rainy day before really asking God how he'd like to lead in that situation. I'm not saying saving money is a bad thing. Of course, that's a smart and wise thing to do, right? In human terms. But we need to be trusting God's wisdom. And remember the story of Hezekiah, how he fortified the walls, built a tunnel and called upon Egypt. All those things were very wise and smart things to do, humanly speaking. But God wanted Hezekiah to trust him. And I think in our own lives, Sometimes we have ways of building little tunnels in our lives and maybe making a little bit of these backup plans in case God doesn't actually come through for us. We look into other areas of our life where we fortify some walls here and you know we tried to provide for ourselves or fulfill ourselves in certain avenues. And so I just invite you to think through maybe what are some of those areas where you do that? What are the areas where you're fortifying the walls? What are the areas where you're calling upon Egypt for aid and building a tunnel? I think a good place to start is uh, maybe looking through some recent financial purchases. It's kind of difficult to look at those sometimes because they show where our heart truly is. And we're confronted with a mirror of what we're really seeking after. And so I encourage you to do that. Go ahead and look back at some of your recent larger financial allocations and ask, really reflect, all right, am I building tunnels here? Am I fortifying walls like Hezekiah? Or am I trusting you, God, to provide and to protect me like you promised to do? Secondly, I think we need to recognize our own inadequacy to solve our problems and to save ourselves. Not only do we try to do it all the time, but uh, it often gets us into trouble too. Um, And it's difficult for us to figure out as Christians As those who follow Christ, how can we live in a world like Corinth in a self-indulgent world? How can we, who are supposed to be like Christ, who are supposed to be sacrificial, how can we walk out there and live like him? But thankfully, God doesn't leave us on our own. He doesn't leave us to follow our own human wisdom and just to ourselves to figure it out. But he gives us his spirit. If we were to read on further in this letter, Paul says that God has given us the mind of Christ himself in the spirit of God. And so we have the great helper who is with us. And so I just ask you to think about maybe some areas of your life. I think we all have it. I know I have it. Certain areas of our lives where maybe we're not so quick to invite God's help into, right? And not to invite his insight. You know, I'm gonna take this over God and you can help me over here, sure. But I'm just kind of gonna take care of this on my own here. And we end up swimming in the deep end. But we don't have to. God's given us the spirit. And so Paul says he's given us the mind of Christ himself. So we need to tap into that. And so I invite you and encourage you to invite the spirit to share God's wisdom, his better wisdom, 
with you in all areas of your life. And lastly, here's an action point. If the gospel really is, if we really believe it to be the greatest expression of wisdom and power, not just any wisdom and power, but the wisdom and power of God himself, then we should preach it. Not just to our neighbors, of course we should preach it to them, but firstly to ourselves. You know, you might have noticed something that when you became a Christian, you woke up the next day with the same sinful tendencies that you had the day before, didn't you? And for those of us who have been following Christ longer than others, we can testify of a long list of times we've messed up and fallen short of God's glory. I had a professor of mine once said, I need the gospel as much today as the day that I became a Christian. And at first, I really didn't understand what he meant by that. And I think often when we approach 1 Corinthians, we look at these believers in Corinth and we say, oh, those are messy, dirty people. But really, if we look in the mirror, we have to admit that we're messy and dirty just like them too. We're not perfect. We fall short all the time. Paul speaks of salvation as something that's already accomplished, something that's in the process, and that will one day come to completion. Talks about it in these three different ways. So how can that be true? How can it be already completed, in process, and yet not yet completed? Well, like I said, you might have noticed that we're not sin sinless, right? Those of us who follow Christ, we're not sinless. We mess up. And you've also noticed that when you became saved, you weren't instantly transported to heaven, right? You're not in the presence of God right now, the full presence of God. And so the full extent of our salvation is not yet realized. But yes, we are absolutely secure. Jesus' work is done on the cross. And he rose again, defeating death in the grave and securing our eternity with him. For those of us who believe on him, our salvation is secure. It is finished. It is completed. But there's still this process in the middle here where we're not quite like him yet fully. We're becoming like him, right? He promises to come again and complete that work, to complete the work that he began in us. And so we're in that little middle period time right now. And so in the meantime, what we need to do is to preach the gospel to ourselves because Paul says in this passage that it's folly to those who are perishing, the gospel, but to us who are being saved, who are in that process of becoming like Christ, the gospel is power. And so as we preach the gospel to ourselves, we invite God's wisdom and power in our lives today. And we are reminded of the true reality in which we live, not as citizens of this world, but as citizens of his kingdom. And that this life on earth is not about self-gain, but it's about sacrificial service to the king of kings and to the Lord of lords. And this is why we must preach the gospel to ourselves so that our minds are aligned and our hearts empowered to be faithful ambassadors for Christ, to be like him and to show others what he is like. And so we bear a seemingly foolish message in a self-indulgent world. Jesus Christ crucified for you. And so I hope that you can declare with me and the Apostle Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And that is the wisdom of God in a suffering Savior.
Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are so in awe of your wisdom and your power. We are reminded this morning that we are not you, that you are God and we are not. And there's a reason for that, that we are your creation. Help us, Lord, when we try to rely on our own wisdom and our own power for fulfillment, for salvation, that you correct us, that you remind us of the gospel. You remind us that Jesus died for us and that his death on that cross was the demonstration of your perfect wisdom and plan to save us. We thank you that you are not a God who is all powerful, but so far away and in the distance. But Father, that you are near to us and that in sending Jesus, you showed us how much you loved us. Open up our eyes to what Jesus has done for us and show us how we can walk and be like him so that others might come to know him as well. This is our prayer this morning. We pray in Jesus' name and through the Spirit. Amen.